We have much to praise the Lord for. Reading uh, chapter 46, verses 1 through 5. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. And Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent them to carry. Father in heaven, thank you for this time this morning, and I pray that you would guide my lips to speak your truth, that it would be abuse and encouragement and uh, building up to all of your people here and that you would plant good seeds on the of your people to grow and multiply your people. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was younger, uh, I used to really love to travel, and by God's grace, had opportunity to travel to a lots of places in this big, beautiful earth. Uh, in my youth, my family, by car, uh, once by a borrowed RV, I was able to visit almost all of the lower 48 states. Uh, we took a few trips to Europe. My dad had accumulated a bunch of frequent flyer miles through some travel with work, and I think three trips to Europe. The fact that I can't remember it's two or three shows how blessed I was. Uh, in my mid-20s, I had opportunity to go to India and uh, jumped on that. Uh, a few years later, I had opportunity to go to South America, uh, Chile specifically, and was really eager to do that. Uh, my later 20s, uh, which was around the time that I came to Omaha the first time, you might recall I had, uh, was employed as a tour guide on the East Coast. Uh, it was nine years, parts of a year, not all the year, of course, uh, but I worked as a tour guide out there. Really enjoyed, for a while at least, uh, the jet-setting life, all that time spent in fancy hotels. But now, <clears throat> I don't enjoy travel so much. Uh, perhaps it's TSA, uh, perhaps it's other things, but I can honestly say that I have very little desire to travel, uh, especially abroad. Uh, maybe that's because I'm spoiled. Again, had opportunity to see a lot of places uh, that most people, perhaps even you, have never uh, had opportunity to see. Uh, perhaps because I'm lazier than I used to be. It takes a lot of effort to, to plan, uh, to gar uh, gather the bags, the things you need for these trips. Um, so I'm no longer as eager to go to that work, perhaps. Or because I'm cheap, yes, it's expensive and uh, gets more and more so, not just gas prices, but all the parts of a trip. It's awfully expensive. Or in a more positive light, so I wanna focus on this here. Maybe it's because I'm content, right? I've seen these things, I don't need to see them again. And I also, for your encouragement, would say that the United States is an incredibly beautiful country, so don't feel like you've gotta buy the expensive plane tickets. Uh, to go abroad to see amazing things. So perhaps it's my contentment, my desire just to be at home, enjoy the time uh, with my family there. But I should clarify that I would definitely be willing to travel if God gave me the desire to travel, right? And that would definitely be the case if he called me to go somewhere. So saying that I have no desire to travel abroad doesn't mean I won't go there or I wouldn't travel uh, within the States, that I wouldn't go there if God wanted me to. Because if God called me to do that, then I certainly, Lord willing, by his grace, would be more than willing, would be eager and excited to go where he is taking me. 
And such was the case uh, with Jacob in the text before us today. Uh, He apparently was very satisfied with where he's at, and we can commend him for that. Uh, The providences of the famine, so the difficulty in providing for his household was actually not enough to drive him from his home. Recall in the previous chapters we reviewed together last time that he sent several resupply journeys down to supply food, and and that was good enough. He's basically thinking, we don't all have to go down there. Let's just send a troop to bring some supplies back, because I like being here. This is where God has called me to. Finally, though, his son's excited stories upon their return, and that was the subject of our last sermon, that story and their excitement and their joy at having found out where Joseph was, was enough to push him to make this trip. The critical factor being his great desire to see Joseph, that beloved son. Yet I do believe, and we'll see here some evidence that he was reluctant. He needed reassurance. He needed a little bit of nudging to get on his way on this journey and to know that it truly was God's will for him to go down there. Our previous examination of the earlier chapters taught us that the Lord promised a trip like this years before God had promised that a journey like this would take place. And we knew uh, from what we saw that God fulfills those promises. Whether we as weak humans remember it or we forget it, God is surely going to achieve those promises. And it's a tremendous, a remarkable, an extraordinary, really a treasured evidence of his mercy and grace that he condescends to offer reassurances such as we see in our text today. He offers these reassurances to reluctant, to to hesitant, to cautious, and maybe just to complacent or to content people such as us. Are you one of those? Are you reluctant or hesitant or cautious or content? I wrote in my notes here, people nodding. Do I see people nodding? Inwardly, at least, I see people nodding. Well, friends, uh, with Jacob and countless others before us, let us be confident that in and through Christ, the God of our fathers graciously and mercifully leads us on to do his will. Even if that's far off, if it's near, if it's far in our hearts, if it's down the street where we wouldn't normally go, God leads us on to do his will. I believe that we will see this in the beginning, which of course these verses is just the beginning of this journey, his trip to Beersheba and beyond. So turn with me to our text. Uh, Begin at verse 1, actually a few verses before that. I want to rewind to the tail end of our previous chapter, uh, reading from verse 26 of chapter 45 on down through verse 1. And they told him, this is the brothers, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had. We'll stop there, verse 1a. Suffice it to say that Joseph or Jacob was overwhelmed by the news, and rightly he should have been. It's extraordinary that he sent them down there on this trip, and the explanation for one of the brothers being retained, and then the whole uh, history that we reviewed last time, the whole purpose for this is that God has kept Joseph alive. The son that he thought was dead, that he had received that blood-stained cloak, 
No, he is alive, not dead, and that he will actually have opportunity to see him, that he's being called down to Egypt. Uh, part of the information they would have relayed is the details of the famine, that there's still years of that to come. And so Joseph, through the brothers, has sent message to say, there is opportunity to survive this. Come down and let us be together. So Jacob was overwhelmed, and still overwhelmed with that news, his reply at the end there of chapter 45 is basically, that's enough information. You don't need to tell me anymore. Yes, I will go down to Egypt to see my son Joseph. Verse one then of our chapter here follows seamlessly upon that. We need to take out those uh, uninspired chapter breaks sometime. Uh, Really, it flows seamlessly. He said, I will go see Joseph. Chapter here begins, the very next verse, so Israel began that journey. He said he'd go, indeed, he will go. And he acknowledges, he realizes that this is not a short-term venture. It's not going to be a short supply run like he'd sent his sons on before. It's evident that he didn't plan on being back for a while, if ever, since, he says, since it says here that he took all that he had, everything, everyone was going with him. No need to leave behind a little troop saying, hey, we'll be back in a while. No, all that he had is going with him. He knew that this was more than a short-term trip because, as I said, his sons had passed along to him the information from Joseph saying that there's multiple years of famine ahead. Don't just take some grain back with you, but you should come down here and settle because it's going to get a whole lot worse. Uh, This invitation for a prolonged trip to Egypt would no doubt have clicked in Jacob's mind, so to speak, bringing to remembrance that promise that we discussed last time from Genesis 15. Uh, You'll recall, and I'll read two verses of it here. This is word spoken to Abraham by God, Genesis 15, chapters, uh, verses 13 and 14, where he said, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So pause here and imagine, if you can put yourself in, Abraham, or in uh, Jacob's shoes for a moment, Jacob thinking, ah, yes, my grandfather Abraham told me that this would happen. Someday, didn't know when. My father Isaac reminded me of these promises of God, that someday our descendants would head down to this other nation, don't know where it is, and that they would be staying there for 400 years, and that there would be difficulty, but that eventually he would bring them back up. And Jacob further thinking, yes, back in my good years when I was diligent and trying to remind my grandsons now, remember, I taught Reuben, I taught Judah, I taught Dan, I, I taught Simeon that this would happen, right? This is the knowledge I have passed on to my descendants so that they would be prepared for the time when these promises would come to pass. So sitting there on that incredible day that Jacob receives this news that Joseph, Joseph is alive, no doubt in Jacob's mind is these truths, these promises are beginning to happen. This is the moment that that first clause is going to take place. There are to be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That means they need to leave the land that is theirs and go to a land that is not theirs. So again, putting ourselves in Jacob's shoes, this in and of itself is hard. Perhaps that's part of my reluctance to travel now is I enjoy my home. I enjoy being with my people, my family, in my house. And to go to some other land is by definition to not be in my land anymore. So this would have been hard for Jacob to go. Uh, The next clause of that Genesis 15 uh, promise would also have been difficult. 
your descendants will serve them, right? Uh, recall that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all very wealthy men. God blessed them. Text in various places uh, throughout the book of Genesis emphasizes really that point, that God had blessed these men. They were very wealthy. They were not in the habit of serving others. Uh, the fact that they would serve this foreign nation is a step down, as it were, a change in how their lives were going. And so that would have been difficult. And the next clause in Genesis 15, they will be afflicted 400 years. I mean, that's longer than our country has existed. Let's put that in perspective. Uh, that, no doubt, would bring some pain to Jacob, knowing that there would be an extended, not just a brief, but an extended period of difficulty. Not that Jacob had had, you know, roses and uh, perfect, easy life every day of his own years. He endured several decades of affliction with his uncle in Haran, but several decades is nothing like several hundred years, 400 years of affliction for his descendants. So while he's thinking, wow, this is what God had promised is going to happen, there's now the harsh reality of the service and of the years of affliction. But no doubt the final part of those verses I read from chapter 15 would have been a great encouragement, giving Jacob great peace. Quoting it again for you, the nation they serve I will judge and they shall come out with great possessions. So Jacob could think of the full story, all four clauses of these two verses, and realize, yes, in the end, God's people win. He works all things for their good and for his own glory. So yes, I will go. I want to go. Didn't want to go earlier. I wanted to just get the grain from Egypt and, and continue on as things were. But no, now I want to go to Egypt. So though reluctant to begin the journey, I believe it is with a desire to be reunited with Joseph, a, a desire to see the promises of God coming to pass that I believe G Jacob was now made willing to go. Uh, he knew he would die before he returned, that the allotted time was up, so he better take everything with him. And the key point, I believe, for us to learn at this point in the story is that Jacob had a variety of motivations for going, right? Rare is the time when we just have one reason to do anything. And really, that's okay. There can be a, a complexity, a, a milieu of reasons to do something. Uh, if it's the desire of his heart to see his beloved son, that's a good thing. If it's a desire to see God's perfect will come to pass, fulfilling this prophecy, that certainly is a good thing. As long as those desires of the heart don't conflict with God's revealed will and stand in opposition to them, then they are good, and they can be part of the reasons why we obey that call. Next, having departed to Beersheba, or sorry, departed towards Egypt, we see him coming to Beersheba. We see the comfort that Jacob found there. Verse 1b, Israel came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. I uh, put a map on your sermon notes sheet just so you can get a bit of a big picture appreciation for this journey. Uh, you can see Canaan on the right, uh, Philistia runs below that, and then Egypt off to the left, the west. Uh, so as they're making this trip, uh, you can see that they would have traveled really through Philistia on the way to Egypt. And I believe it is significant uh, for no other reason that the divine author mentions it twice in these few verses and brackets these events by the mention of Beersheba. So it was significant that he spent some time here. So begs the question, why? Why does God emphasize this by recording it and emphasizing it for us? Well, recall this was far from the first time that any major figure in redemptive history had spent time in Beersheba. It is not the first time. Abraham 
had spent time there. It was there that he dug a well, uh, that he ran into conflict with the local king, and he made a treaty of peace. That's in chapter 21. Uh, he was living in Beersheba when, this is all Abraham. He was living in Beersheba when God called him to head to the mountain to offer Isaac, his beloved son, uh, as a sacrifice. Uh, it was there that he returned to uh, after that faith building event, faith testing event. And uh, of course, there on the mountain is where God provided that sacrifice pointing to Christ. But other than Abraham, it was none other than Isaac uh, who spent significant time in Beersheba. Isaac was forced by famine to leave Canaan uh, toward the north and was told not to go to Egypt, but ended up sojourning in Philistia, a little further west in Gerar, before he finally settled in Beersheba. Uh, it was there, too, that he made a treaty with the king. He redug the wells that that king's men had stopped up that were dug by Abraham, so he reused those wells. And it was Beersheba that was Isaac's home in the whole story of Esau and Jacob and the blessing being stolen and Jacob having to flee to Haran. So they were living in Beersheba when that event happened. And from Beersheba is uh, where J uh, Jacob fled when he went to Haran, ultimately finding his wives and all of that. So definitely, all that suffice to say, this was a significant place of all of the whole region, Beersheba is significant in the lives of Jacob's forefathers, as well as in his own life, since it was his home before he left for Haran. Interestingly, though, uh, when he returned from Haran, he did not resettle in Beersheba. He was instead to the north in Hebron. Uh, perhaps at times, because it's not a great distance, he made trips down there. And so he was familiar with Beersheba. But certainly, if he's headed south by southwest to Egypt, it's very natural for him to stop in Beersheba. And we see him here stopping to worship, partake of, to partake of a sacrificial meal. And in doing so, he commemorated the great things the Lord had done for his forefathers. Indeed, the great things the Lord had done for him. And to give you just a, a slight example, as we continue on looking at this, uh, myself, you know, when I, I've traveled the Rocky Mountains, uh, hiked through them from Canada to Mexico, so whenever I'm traveling west, uh, sometimes it's from the car window because we can't stop, but uh, other opportunities I've had to actually stop and get out and to say, you know, I, I walked through here. You know, here's I-80 and I hiked here underneath the underpass and just to reflect on what God had done in my life. You know, I can remember, I can close my eyes and I can picture, you know, it was sunny that day and whatever, and to think that's who I was back then. This is who I am now. Look what God has done, the promises he's fulfilled. In a, in a much, much more elevated level, I believe that is what Jacob is doing here. He's returning to a spot that has had significance in his life, a significance in redemptive history as God has worked in the lives of his forefathers, and he's remembering what God has done. He's acknowledging God's greatness in what he's done in the past and what he will do <clears throat> in the future. So following his forefather who built an altar there, as Isaac did in chapter 26, here he offered sacrifices. And I don't want us to pass over this and think, oh, that's interesting. You know, lots of people offered sacrifices. But to pause for a moment and to think, this is really encouraging. Remember, Jacob liked being in the promised land. That's where he'd been called to be. He's leaving. This is no small thing. He is actually doing what God has called him to do. Lots of people don't, right? People have been known to run the other direction. But no, here is Jacob setting himself toward Egypt. He's, he's taking real steps 
to go down the road to see God's will done. And he stops at this place. The Lord has shown great care for his people in the past. Uh, He didn't just shoot on by. He paused for a moment to acknowledge God. Uh, He didn't stop there to invoke some superstitious ritual, uh, thinking God dwelt in that region specifically as if there needed to be a shrine erected and you know, pay your little toll and, and move on. No, Jacob worshiped not the place, but the person, approaching him through the shedding of blood, offering those sacrifices, which of course is the only way that we can approach God. As I meditated on this uh, portion of the passage, uh, the Lord brought John chapter four to mind. Uh, that passage, which you're likely familiar with, is where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And you'll recall that she was greatly concerned with the where of worship and almost sort of provoking Jesus to a little discussion as to where is the right place to worship. You know, some people say this and you people say this. What's the answer? Jesus' answer was not to answer that question. Instead of focusing on where, his answer was to focus on who and the what of worship. And very interestingly, of course, because her uh, eyes were being opened to the reality of who she was speaking with, I believe she was elect, that woman did not seem at all put off by the answer that Jesus told her. And even more remarkably, Jesus gave her one of the clearest self-declarations of his Messiahship recorded anywhere in the whole Bible. She said, Messiah is coming. And his reply, I who speak to you am he. That is an extraordinary exchange, all begun with a discussion of where are we to worship. Jesus' answer is, I, I am the one. Coming back then, and how is this relevant to chapter 46, Jacob by faith reached out to God there at Beersheba as he worshiped. Yes, it was a historically significant place, and God works in places. He's not far off in some other realm. He works in history, in physical places. But it was the person of God that made that place significant. A lot of people today are all about Israel, the holy land. Is it holy as in set apart? I mean, there's two, two facets to the word holy as in you know, pure, which is only the case if God is there which if God's, if God's historical people have rejected him, he is no longer there. Uh, perhaps there is some holiness in terms of set-apartness left in the, quote, holy land, because God has promises to still reclaim that. But let us not think that particular venues, you know, a rock here and a, a mountainside there, are special because they're merely pretty or something has happened there historically. I think a lot of people overly revere some Civil War sites in our countries. You know, it's interesting. It's good to, to know the history of our forefathers, but it is the person of God, not so much these places, that is the important thing. And so, friends, we have the privilege of doing the same, of meeting the person of God wherever he is, right? Seek him, and you will find him. God has made himself known. Uh, he's called us to follow him wherever he leads us, And our acts of worship through the blood-bought mediation of Jesus Christ are the only way to give the Father what he seeks. And this was Jesus' point there at the end of the conversation in John chapter 4. God seeks worship in spirit and truth. And that's what Jacob offered there at Beersheba. Well, how does God reply? Because all of true worship is a dialogue with God. And we see that reply in what I've called the encounter at Beersheba in verses two through four. 
Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. There is a lot here, <laughs> suffice it to say. As Ray was referring to earlier, you can write multiple books and you get into lots of discussions on the eternality of the Godhead and the nature before creation and things like this. <clears throat> so I don't need to necessarily get into and don't have time for looking at the fact that God spoke, right? Verbal revelation, that the inspired author used the word Israel as opposed to Jacob, that God speaks in visions, not in vision singular, but it's plural, uh, that God said Jacob's name twice, uh, the words that Jacob answers, uh, here I am, uh, the interesting statement of God's own name. Setting those all aside, uh, save those for lunchtime conversation or other discussions later. Setting aside those six rich details, I want to focus on the words of comfort and encouragement in verses 3 and 4. So as I said before, I think Jacob was reluctant, but he's now sort of gotten himself together to get on the way. But by the things that God himself says here, I think we see further clarification. Jacob wasn't just reluctant, or perhaps that reluctancy was because of fear. So apparently Jacob was fearful, and God calms those fears with four assurances. And so briefly to look at those four assurances. First assurance to calm Jacob's fears is that he will be built into a great nation as a result of this journey. Uh, could be, no doubt, that Jacob was looking around at this relatively small caravan and wondering, when is that big Abrahamic promise of nation status going to come to pass? So here God speaks to that fear and says, it'll be okay. It looks small now, but during the time your descendants are in Egypt, you will multiply greatly. Uh, this is very similar to the sad disciples, if you recall, on the road to Emmaus. All these events that have happened that don't exactly add up to the plan they would have made. And to those men, Jesus said, that Christ had to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. So really Jesus is saying, yes, it looks bad now, but this is how it needed to happen for this glorious conclusion to happen. And you remember in that interaction they had with them, they went away just like, wow, this is incredible. They run back and they tell their friends and, and things continue on with a much more positive light. So it really helped them shift their perspective. And I believe God is doing the same for Jacob here. Don't despise the small beginnings. From such small beginnings come great endings. Uh, the second assurance that God gives to calm his fears is the promise to be with him. Uh, certainly Jacob did not think that the true God was a regional deity who was confined to this area and he needed to make his token presence and make a little contact with him before leaving. No, that would have been idolatry and certainly uh, I know that Jacob was far beyond that. Yet at some level, I think it's, it's reasonable that he had a fear of missing God's presence in the ways and in the places he had known them before. And uh, so God is calming him and saying, I will be with you. I will not leave you. You're not going to be by yourself. And this uh, brought to my mind uh, Jesus' promise at a, another sort of trauma point in the life of his disciples in the Great Commission. We hear Jesus saying to him, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there the disciples were just about to see him taken up to heaven. And they're thinking, oh, we've got a big project ahead. How are we going to do this? And Jesus calms that fear saying, I am with you always. 
And so God does the same here with Jacob. I will be with you. A third assurance to calm his fear. The next clause, promising to bring him back up. Certainly this wasn't new. As I said, Genesis 15 makes it clear. Y'all are going to go down to this country. It's going to be difficult years, but you will be brought back up in an even better state. But I think there's two aspects in which God is calming this fear in assuring him with the words, surely, I will also surely bring you up again. One is that collective, so the, the national bringing up again. And as I said, that is alluded to in uh, Genesis 15, uh, but it is made clear that the sojourners would come out again. After 400 years, they would come out and that they would do so with great possessions. So again, that can trigger in Abraham's you know, uh, tired, uh, anxious, whatever mind, it can trigger in, in uh, Jacob rather, okay, this is good. You know, God's in control. He said this, it's going to happen. There will be a good result. So it calm, calms that fear. But also I think there is a more personal aspect. So the national and the personal aspect in which God is calming Jacob's fear. And that is that Jacob himself would be brought up from Egypt. And it's legit for you to say, how's that? You know, Mr. Ellie, you already said that Jacob thought he was going down there because he'd never be back again. Therefore, he's taking all that he had. How is it that he personally is going to be <clears throat> coming back from Egypt? Well, this did come to pass, as we read in chapter 50, in that his bones were brought back to be buried. He really wanted to be buried in the promised land in Canaan, and he certainly was. He was buried in the same cave that his forefathers had bought. And so he personally was brought back up out of Egypt, just like the nation eventually was brought back out of Egypt in fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 15. And lastly, the fourth of these four assurances that the Lord God gives to Jacob to calm his fears is that assurance that Joseph would be with him at his death. Uh, several commentators I read stated that this was an ancient custom for a son to close the eyes of the deceased father. And you, know, you can think in some old movie of the man you know, putting his hand over and, and the eyes are closed. So whether it's a, a gesture of honor or a, you know, a passing of the mantle, uh, I, I'm uncertain. But it was apparently very important to Jacob that his son be there at his death. And so God assures him, yes, yes, you do not need to be fearful. Yes, your son will be with you when you die. Do not worry. So really, God's answer through all of this is fear not. He said it multiple times to confront each of Jacob's fears. And we can ponder for a moment the tremendous kindness whereby God interacts and condescends to his people to calm those fears, right? We, maybe in motivating our, our teams at work or even our children at home, can sometimes think, I just want you to get going. <laughs> just do it. Do I need to convince you? you know, how can I motivate you? And God is very kind. He does meet Jacob where he is to calm him and to assure him even in the midst of these fears. Well, certainly a meeting like this with Almighty God is going to have impact on a man, right? This is no small thing to hear and to see God in these visions. And it definitely impacted Jacob. And I want to show you how we know that in verse 5, just the first part of it. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba. 
So where in that do we see that Jacob is reinvigorated? Well, admittedly, uh, I believe the, main, we, the uh, meaning of the Hebrew uh, is not well captured in the English. It's very pedantic in English. Then Jacob arose or set out uh, or left, as other translations have it. He left Beersheba. Makes it sound like, well, Jacob woke up, you know, packed the bags, get it all back on the carts, and just continued on. That's just, you know, one day, next day was Wednesday, keep going. Well, that's not uh, what the significance of the word arose is in the Hebrew. That has a sense of springing up, rebounding. Uh, think in your mind uh, a picture of you know, a taut, a well-inflated helium balloon. When you press it down and then let it go, it doesn't just you know, slowly rise. It bounds up. It springs up. The energy that was once restrained is then released. So the sense is that Jacob arrived at Beersheba, a deflated balloon, if you will. He was a bit discouraged. He was weary. He's got a long trip away from him. He's leaving home. He's got the thoughts on his mind of multiple generations facing some serious afflictions. But here, meeting God, having all of these fears answered, he was pumped up, excited, some spring in his step. The new day dawned, and he sprung to life. The journey onward to Egypt, I believe, then would have been a joyful journey. And so that's why I titled the previous section a couple points ago, The Comfort of Beersheba. Uh, he was needing that reinvigoration, and he found that comfort by visiting Beersheba. The fact that he was invigorated implies that he was downcast. Uh, he came weary, he sought comfort, he found it in that encounter with God. And now, as I've worded it with some spring in his step or sprightliness, as I wrote it in your outlines, with renewed hope, having seen and met and been spoken to and encouraged by the living God, he then journeyed beyond Beersheba. Well, coming to a conclusion here, what does this all have to teach us? I think with any text, we should ask ourselves, how can we respond, especially to historical narrative, how can we respond to this portion in the life of Jacob? What does this have to do with us? It's one Thing, and it's an important thing to say, yes, I believe this really happened. I believe that God did work in the lives of these forefathers centuries ago. It's not just a made-up thing that some liberals would say. So yes, believe it happened, but more than that, what can we do in response to it? In order to uh, prevent this portion of God's word uh, from becoming just merely a, a passing interest, uh, I want to propose a way, and you can do this, uh, I try to do it, with, I don't want to say all, most, many uh, preaching texts that I hear. So propose a way to work it into your thoughts uh, to perhaps make it an anchor point uh, for future applications as you, as you discuss it with friends or with family, uh, a, a way to really live out uh, the lessons that we see here. So to accomplish that, maybe make a bit of an explanation. The reason I titled this sermon, Beersheba and Beyond, is because clearly the divine author wanted us to know that this took place at Beersheba. As I said, it's a bookends, verse one and verse five. He came to Beersheba, he arose from Beersheba. Ask the question, why Beersheba? What's the big point with Beersheba? Hopefully I've answered that clearly because Beersheba was a place that figured prominently in God's working in the covenant people before Jacob and Jacob gained strength there for God's continuing work in the covenant people going forward. So that's the significance of 
Beersheba. No doubt in the months ahead when they were adjusting to their new life in Goshen, Jacob would share with them, ah, remember our stop in Beersheba? The Lord was so good to meet with us there. He spoke to me. Remember what he told me? Let's you know, continue on. Uh, in years to come, even after Jacob had died, his descendants could encourage one another by taking personal ownership of God's assurances, saying to one another, remember Beersheba, right? Beersheba and beyond. God is with us and working in us. We'll leave this place someday. The travail will be over. If not for us, then for our descendants. Don't lose hope. So they could sort of tag that back to Beersheba. And so for us, thousands of years later, make Beersheba your own. Uh, Maybe you have a Christian friend who's weary. Uh, You can buoy them up saying, hey, brother, remember Beersheba. Worship the Lord and he will lift up your spirit. Uh, If you personally maybe are anxious about challenges ahead, you're questioning God's presence, you can tell yourself, hey, self, remember Beersheba. With the sacrifice of praise, I will be thankful rather than anxious. Or if you're doing great, just like some of our beaming newlyweds or newly engaged, and people ask you, why is your smile so big? What do you tell them? I was just at Beersheba. God is working in my life. He's leading me on, right? So you can anchor that to what God did here at Beersheba. Uh, Just as importantly, if you have an opportunity that the Lord gives you to witness to an unsaved neighbor, you're wondering, just how do I put into words the reason for the hope that is within me? How do you say that, right? How do you witness to somebody who's asking on Monday, so what did you do yesterday? Or how was your weekend? You can say, God met me at Beersheba. Have you been there yet? They're going to look at you and be like, what? That makes no sense. But Lord willing, and I think that's a good thing, that it doesn't make sense to them, because then you have opportunity to explain to them. Lord willing, you've caught their attention by saying something other than, it's good, life's fun, you know, whatever, however we answer these normal questions, how's it going? Lord willing, the door will be open for a meaningful conversation where you can tell them about the God of Scripture, about His promises, about the one in whom those promises are answered, the one Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's make Remember Beersheba or Beersheba and Beyond our cry of comfort, our cry of celebration, our cry of battle. Because the Lord met his people at Beersheba. He took them far beyond Beersheba. So may God be with you on that journey. Let's pray. Father God, you indeed are so good and so gracious. While you call your people to do what we see as hard things, uh, as it's seen in our own body and our own strength, they're not too hard for you. And we see here in this text that you, while calling Jacob to do something difficult, something he may not have chosen to do, wasn't the top of his list, but you called him to do it. By faith, he obeyed it. And in doing so, he found great joy and pleasure and satisfaction. You answered all his fears. You carried him and his descendants on into what uh, became a greatly difficult time. But you are sufficient to sustain your people. May we gain that same strength in whatever trials we face. Uh, May we look back to Beersheba and know you, a good God, who sent his son 
to die for us and to give us joy everlasting. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.